Alright, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 20. If you are new to our church, welcome. My name is Sam. And we go um, through books of the Bible, verse by verse, even on Easter. So uh, we're in Matthew chapter 20. And we'll be in verses 29 to 34. If you don't have a Bible, we have free Bibles on shelves and all around the place. So figure if we're going to give something away free, might as well be a Bible. So please grab one. But it should be on the screen. Matthew chapter 20, verses 29 to 34 says this. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And the crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. And they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Lord, let our eyes be open. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. This is God's word. Let me pray so I don't mess it up. Father God, we thank you for your grace to us. You are good, you are great. You are gracious and generous. I pray this morning, Father, You'll move me out of the way, and Holy Spirit, You will do the work that only You can do. Convict those of us who need conviction and comfort those of us who need comfort. But, Father, we ask that You will change us by Your Spirit from the inside out. And lead us to the cross where we find Your justice satisfied on our behalf by You and Your great love poured out for us so that we are not defined by our failures or our successes, but by what Your Son Jesus did. It's in His name we pray. Amen. So for those visiting, um, we typically, uh, I don't like special Easter sermons, can't stand them, but we are going straight through, and we also um, see that many churches do many things on Easter which are very creative and wonderful. Um, for those visiting, we decided this year not to do a bell choir, although um, I've been told by a good friend of mine, he once saw um, some like 70-year-old lady do an entire bell choir, like 40 bells by herself, sprinting back and forth this amazing song. So if I can find her, we will have her here because it sounded rad. But we decided against, you know, crazy pyrotechnics show, that'd be kind of fun, or inflatable bunnies that were big bouncy houses, or pancake breakfasts, or politically correct spring orb hunts, or whatever they're supposed to be called now. Um, we've chosen to do the very thing we do every single Sunday, which is the only thing we believe that has any power, and that is preaching Jesus Christ, life, death, and resurrection. No different. Every song's theme is the same, Jesus. Every sermon's point is the same. You need Jesus. It's all the same. Christians, I've found, particularly uh, as I've been a pastor, I see that many pastors talk often about the incarnation, Jesus coming into the world. They, they talk often and rightly so about His crucifixion. But I don't know if we talk enough about His resurrection. In fact, it seems like um, we don't talk much about it except one day a year. The resurrection is the linchpin by which all Christianity holds together. But it seems like 
for 364 days of the year, we're pretty silent about it. It's very different than Christmas, of which we'll probably start in the next couple of weeks promoting Christmas coming. But today is the one day that we talk often about resurrection, and it ought not be so, is my point. The resurrection is part and parcel, part of the gospel, and in fact, Paul says it is the linchpin, the foundation, the most important aspect. There can never be enough sermons about Jesus' resurrection, is my point. And the truth is, as you uh, look in the Bible, Easter was the only sermon the disciples had. As you read the book of Acts, which is the time period right after Jesus ascended to heaven, in that book you'll see that they talk about the resurrection often. From the very beginning, when they were finding a replacement for Judas, who had betrayed Jesus, the qualification amongst others, but the primary was that he was a witness to the resurrection of Jesus. In Peter's first sermon ever, Acts chapter 2, he proclaimed, among a few other things, the reality of Jesus' resurrection. His second sermon condemned the men of Israel for killing Jesus, whom God had raised from the dead. The religious leaders started to get very annoyed at Peter and James and John and any other disciples, particularly because they were proclaiming the resurrection. The book of Acts also says that when James and John were arrested in the early chapters for this teaching, their entire defense before men who could jail them, beat him, and do many other things was that we must obey God and not men who raised Jesus from the dead. The first martyr in Acts chapter 7 named Stephen, his last breaths were describing a vision of a glorified and living Jesus who had been raised from the dead. And the leader of that persecution, Saul, who would be eventually called Paul, was transformed from a murder to a martyr after a face-to-face encounter with the resurrected Jesus. Easter is still the only sermon we have. Though, unfortunately, church has become known for many others other than that. But we should be known as the people, not only just of the way, but of the resurrection. It is the key identifying difference between what we believe and what any other religion might put forward. We serve a living Savior. All sermons should point to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus because that is what the entire Bible is about. So if that's true, it really doesn't matter what we preach. But God has placed us providentially in Matthew chapter 20, verses 29 to 34, passages before he even enters Jerusalem, which if we were following the calendar would have happened last Sunday. Puts us in a passage about two blind men. Perhaps that's ironic because while much of the world, most of the world believes in Jesus, in that they believe he was a real person, they believe that he was a generally good guy, most people believe and admire his teachings, that he was a good example. But few, the minority of people that have ever lived 
since Jesus came onto this planet, believe that He rose from the dead. Few people believe in Jesus' resurrection. Few believe, which means most of the world is blind to who Jesus really is, who He proved to be by His resurrection. One thing I want us to understand today is that Jesus is in the business of saving blind people. And only blind people. In John chapter 9, which records the whole chapter is dedicated to a story of a blind man who is given sight. It could be one of these men that he's speaking to here. It's four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Generally tell the same story from different perspectives with different purposes. But John chapter 9 says this, Jesus' words. Jesus said, For judgment I came into the world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. And some of the Pharisees, these would be the religious leaders, near him heard these things and said, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you'd have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. So what's the point of it all? As we talk today, I want us to understand that Jesus saves the blind and He warns those people who say they can see. Now, the Bible has a lot to say about blindness. And Jesus had a lot to say about blindness. In Luke 4, Again, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, same story, different perspectives. In the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, before He really healed anybody, or preached any sermons, or called any disciples, in Luke chapter 4, He goes back to His hometown of Nazareth. And He goes into the synagogue, which was tradition, and He picks up the scroll of Isaiah, which they would have done. The Bible was written in scrolls of Jeremiah, Isaiah, whatever. Picks up Isaiah, stands up, opens it up, and reads. And this is what He wrote, read. He said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. And he sat down. After taking his seat, he said, the Scripture's been fulfilled in your presence. And they're like, what? Actually, it was a riot, and they kicked him out, and it was really pretty awesome. But... Jesus said that His mission was to come and to heal the blind. Then when John the Baptist, who had been kind of preparing the way for Jesus, had been imprisoned for calling out a government official and his unlawful marriage, John the Baptist, who had said, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. There's the guy whose sandals I'm not even worthy to untie. He was not sure himself. As he sits in prison, he sends some of his disciples to Jesus to ask, are you really the one? Or should we wait for someone else? And this is what Jesus said back to them. He said, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight. First thing he says. And the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear and the dead are raised, and the poor have good news preached to them. So Jesus came to restore sight to those who are blind. 
But blindness always pointed beyond a physical problem. In fact, all of our physical problems, all of what is our emotional problems, our material problems, all of those problems we have. The reality that we live in a broken world, that we have broken bodies. We're always supposed to point to the reality of our spiritual brokenness. Jesus certainly healed physical blindness. He, he healed it. He did cure many people. But just as Jesus forgave the sins of a man who was paralyzed and been lowered down through a roof by his friends, before he said, stand up and walk, he said, your sins are forgiven. Because physical healing is a nice secondary benefit of what Jesus really intends to do, which is to heal hearts. All of our problems in the world, whatever problem you think you have, whatever problem you think someone else has, whatever problem you think government has, whatever problem you think other people elsewhere have, all of our problems are not principally physical in nature, nor are they emotional, intellectual, or material. They are spiritual. In his second letter to the Corinthian church, Paul said it this way, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of the God. We're blind. Psalm 115, the Bible says that idols themselves, those things we worship instead of God, are blind and deaf. And it continues to say, those who worship them become like them, blind and deaf. Sin has always been, in the Bible, associated with blindness. And salvation is always associated with vision, with being able to see. We are blind. And more than that, many of us are blind to our blindness. We don't think we're blind. Now the truth is, men are blind, but it hasn't always been this way. From the beginning we see that God created a world in which men could see. See in every sense of the word. He created a world that was good, and men could see God. They could see God's authority. They could see God's goodness. They could see God's greatness and His power. They could see God's provision. They could see God's beauty. They could see that we are all creatures, which means we are dependent and accountable to a Creator. They could see what God's will was for their lives, what would bring Him glory and their own joy. Before the fall, men could see in every sense of the word. But the Bible says that our first parents chose darkness rather than light. That they closed their eyes and their hearts to God. And in turn, men exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Blind men worshipped creation. Whether that was another person, a substance, a position, whatever. Blind men began to worship creation rather than the Creator. 
men decided to reject God's goodness and disobey God's word. Men became blind through sin. And men became blind to their sin. Men no longer knew what authority was. They couldn't see God's authority. Men could no longer see God's love and even what love was. Men could no longer understand God's beauty. And yet people began to seek those very things in all the wrong ways. Seeking love and redefining beauty. Pursuing power because they could not see how powerless they actually were. More than once, it's noteworthy to say that the book of Proverbs says that there's a way that appears right to a man, but in the end, it is the way of death. Blind men think they are going the right way, the Bible says. Blind men think they're on the right path, the Bible says. But it is the way of death. Man's decision to eat that which God had forbidden left them lost in darkness and full of guilt and full of shame. Instead of running to God, which they should have done, they hid from Him in the darkness. Like these two blind men sitting on the side of the road. They're utterly helpless. They cannot fix their own situation. They are dependent upon the grace of those walking by, of which is not really that great, it seems, in this story. They cannot tell what is good. They cannot tell what is bad. But unlike these blind men, most of the world refuse to admit that. See, these blind guys see that that's the case. They may not be able to see but they can see that they are blind. They're not looking with their eyes. Left alone like blind men, we will stumble around the darkness and hurt ourselves. Because of sin, we are blind in a dark room, trying to find our way around. And what happens? We just get hurt. We don't know what is good, what is bad, what is right, what is wrong. Things that feel like they're going to hurt actually may be good for us, but that's how we decide because we can't see. We'll just kind of go away from it. Things that feel good, we'll go towards that. Holes that are there, we don't know, we fall in. We're blind. But enter Jesus. Though God created a world that was good and men could see and it fell into darkness, God sent His Son into it to rescue it from darkness. God became man in human flesh. And John, in his first chapter of his Gospel, says that light entered into the darkness and it came to give sight to the blind. Strangely, those who claimed to see, like the Pharisees, were the first ones to reject Him. Same way they rejected nobodies like these blind men. We see in the book of Matthew, in chapters prior to this, that everyone who we think would be able to see can't. People in positions of power, they can't see. Rich men, we saw a few weeks ago, cannot see. Moral men, cannot see. 
Even the disciples struggled to see at times. The blind guys are the only ones who can see. Not with their eyes, but with their hearts. And the question is, what did they see? And in listening to the words of these blind men, I believe you see and you understand what it looks like for someone to experience transformation. The process, for lack of a better word, that that happens to somebody. Listen to their words. The first thing I think these guys say is, I see that I am blind. Seems obvious. But it's a helpless cry. What do I mean by helpless cry? Well, there comes a time in every believer's life when someone is experiencing what I think is God calling them to themselves, there comes a time in your life where you realize you are helpless. Where you realize you are hopeless and hapless by yourself. You see that you have a problem that you cannot solve. A deep problem. You see that you are broken in a way that you cannot fix because you keep making the same mistake over and over and over again. And you're like, why am I doing this? I don't want to be doing this. Every step you take is painful. Every move you make feels off the mark or even backwards. We're just plain wrong. Like walking in the dark. You are blind to the dangers. You're blind to what actually is good or bad. And you are lost as to the way to get out of it. And eventually, you hurt yourself enough. You step in enough holes. You make enough wrong moves as you're trying to find your way out. You kind of, okay, okay, I'm done. I'm done. I'm helpless. I can't get out of this. This is too difficult for me. Somebody turn on the lights. That's a cry for help. And it takes some of us many, many, many years of stumbling around to get to that point. And some never do. But these blind men do, and they cry out with a heart of desperation. Help! Just help! I don't know what I'm doing. I can't fix this. I can't figure it out. The difference between a believer and an unbeliever is the first step of a believer is like, I can't fix this. I can't find my own way out. But it continues. And not only do they see that they're blind, he says, or they say, we see you are the son of David, the Lord. Now the title son of David is is a messianic title. It's basically declaring you're the Messiah, you're the promised Jewish Savior. You are, in many ways, the king. The promised king who would come. The promised king who in Isaiah 35 said would open the eyes of the blind and let the ears of the deaf be unstopped. Who would make the lame leap like a deer and the tongue sing for joy of the mute. That's what they see. This is, the king is here. He's not just the Jewish son of David. He is the Gentile Lord. He reigns over all. So what are these guys saying? I'm desperate. 
But this is the heart of surrender. I'm desperate and then I give up, but I don't just give up and not going to do anything. I give up to you. I surrender to you. I know that you're the one who can fix this. You are the one in whom I need. You, Jesus, are the Lord. I've been on the throne for way too long and I've made a shipwreck of my life trying to find my way out of this storm. I'm ready to get off the throne and let you lead the way. Let you guide the way because you know the way to go. And I don't. But notice the next thing they say, which I think is incredibly moving and sobering, especially for those of us who can see or say we can. They say, we see we're blind. We see that you are the king. And he says, we see that we don't deserve your love. They cry out for mercy. Cry out for mercy. Beautiful, isn't that? Someone's crying out for mercy right now. These men realize, in many ways, their deepest need. I'll be louder than that, don't you worry. At the same time, they know that they do not deserve the king's love. Which is difficult many for, for us to say, perhaps. But the cries of the blind men are not just complaints. The cries of the blind men are not complaints from those people who feel entitled to have suffered long enough. Have mercy is how the blind confess that they know they are broken. They know they are sinful. They know they are rebellious. That at the very core, there is absolutely no one to blame for their stumbling or their existence in darkness but themselves. Have mercy on us, O King. That's rad. It got like louder. That wasn't as bad when I was preaching in Damascus. Well, it's a little side note for you. When I was preaching in Damascus Road and that happened, and then I said, who is that? And I reached in my own pocket and got my own keys and went, boop, boop, sorry. That wasn't me. As you refocus, crying out to the Lord is not a cry to you owe me or you put me in this situation or it's your fault. Which in many ways, the blind man you'd think maybe could say. But we're talking about spiritual blindness. We're talking about situations that we've created ourselves. We have rebelled against the Lord. Oh, I wouldn't have disobeyed like Adam did. Yes, you would have, and you have. But the last thing they see is that Jesus can heal them. Now, Jesus asked them a question that sounds kind of foolish when you like, kind of mean. And Jesus does this often, which I really appreciate. In John chapter 5, he does it where a lame man comes up and he says, I need help. And he goes, do you really want to be healed? He's been lame his whole life. And you're like, yeah, I think he does, Jesus, right? It feels kind of weird. But he always wants to press beyond what's really being asked. What are you really asking? So he goes and he calls to them. 
And he says, what do you want me to do? Which the crowd's probably like, isn't it obvious what you want him to do? Right? But the truth is, they could have asked for a lot of other things. I think Jesus questions them in order to find out if they can really see their deepest need. What do they really believe is going to save them and change their life? What would you ask Jesus for? As beggars, there's lots of things that they've asked other people for. Money. There are many people in this room who believe they had a little more money, it would save them from the hell they're in. Whether it be debt or obtaining something you think you really need or want. A little more money will save me. Jesus, what do you want? Just a little more money. A little more position. A little more power. It's not all bad. I'm lonely, Jesus. Can you just give me someone to love me? What are they going to ask for? Because whatever it is, it's what they're going to believe is truly going to save them. So they don't ask for money. They don't ask for food. They don't ask for clothing. They ask for sight. They understand their deepest need physically and spiritually. And more than that, they see that that need will be met only through Jesus. They never asked anybody else for sight because they knew Jesus was the one who could give them something that only Jesus could give them. This is a heart filled with hope. So they begin by being desperate. They begin and it goes into a place of surrender and then a place of humility. I know I don't deserve this, but I need this. And I believe you can give it to me. They want their eyes open beyond the physical. I believe this is a desire of their heart or anyone's heart to understand and to know and to even relearn what life is all about. It is a cry for meaning. It is a cry for joy. It is a cry for hope in their life that has been steeped in darkness and confusion. Spiritually, they want to be free of all the guilt. They want to be free of all the shame. They want to be free of all the brokenness that came with the fall and their rebellion. They want to stop pretending as if they can find their way through the darkness alone. They want to renounce their independence and declare, I am dependent upon you, God. No, Jesus is not just a crutch. He's a full body cast wheelchair. And I need all of them. They want to fully know Jesus and be fully known by Him. And Jesus, it says, has pity on them. He loves them. The thing about Jesus stopping is that He is on His way into Jerusalem to, according to probably His disciples' perspective, but certainly the crowds, the hundreds of people, the large crowd that's following Him, He expects to you know, assume His throne. It's a coronation. And the king is going to stop to talk to these nobodies? And the crowds even say, what are you doing? What are you wasting your time with these guys? They're coming out of Jericho, which is probably one of the wealthiest cities in Judea at the time. And everybody's saying, what is a king going to waste time on this nobody? And I will tell you right now, that's who Jesus is. 
He's in the business of saving blind people and nobodies. And you all have nothing to do with Jesus, or dare I say, Jesus will have nothing to do with you if you believe you're somebody and you can see. Jesus is here and will stop everything to save that one soul. And He does. And with a touch, with a touch, Jesus eliminates all the consequences of sin and restores sight to these blind men. And in doing so, He reveals something about our God that is amazing. If Jesus truly is God in human flesh, if Jesus truly is the expression of all that is God, Jesus is not just God-like, God is Christ-like. And what we see about God is that He doesn't save us from a distance. He doesn't send His best representatives to do His dirty work. God in human flesh enters into our world and heals our deepest wounds. We need to understand that these blind guys were not just marginalized and looked down upon because of their inability to contribute. They were treated like lepers, as if they were gross. And usually that meant they were rejected because much of the blindness of that time had some nasty, discharge, googie. My wife said, don't use the word googie because it's not a real word. And I said, I'm going to drop it both sermons because it's going to be used. And it goes, ooh, googie. That just sounds googie, googie. Yeah, googie. Nasty, googie, gross, dripping, pussy eyes, right? That came with blindness. And unlike the crowds who want nothing to do with it, no thank you, googmeister, away, right? Jesus touches. He reaches down and He touches our yucky, googie-filled hearts. And He makes them clean. You need to understand that your dirtiness, whatever record of sin you bring before the Lord, is not too dirty for Him to cleanse. And He wants to touch. And He wants to cleanse. And He wants to purify. And He wants you to say, that doesn't define me. Whatever you have done, Whatever you've thought, whatever you've experienced, whatever darkness you have wandered into because you believe you could run your life better than me, that's not too dark for me to clean. That's not too yucky for me to touch. He stands ready to forgive. He stands ready to embrace. He has stopped everything on His mission to go to the cross to save so that He can heal these blind guys. And when Jesus gives a person life, when He gives a person salvation, when He changes the course and brings light into the darkness of one's life, it is like a man receiving sight after a lifetime of blindness. I've seen recently on on Facebook typically some of these videos of people coming out who are receiving hearing for the first time. They've had a lifetime of, of, of deafness and they're starting to like wire their brain up or something. I don't know what they're doing. But as they turn it on, you can see them. And you see wives who haven't ever heard their husband's voice hearing it after you know, 25 years of deafness. And they're just weeping. That's what it's like 
to be saved by Jesus. It is as if you have been blind your whole life and suddenly you can see. And you may have had that experience. Perhaps you remember that experience, but you see it every time someone becomes a Christian where they're like, oh my gosh, I see. I understand. And no, you don't understand everything. No, you don't know everything. No, you're not seeing everything, but you see. It becomes clear. Through faith in Christ. We're not talking about some, oh, well, I understand the facts of Christianity now. Now I believe and I move forward. No! You don't make yourself unblind. You don't go, oh, I've just held my eyes closed all these years. That's not the way it works. You're blind and Jesus goes, boom! You're like, I can see. Because you've been given a new heart. You've been given a new mind. You've been given new eyes. Something that you could not do on your own. You feel differently. You begin to think differently. You see everything in with different eyes because you have a different identity now. You have a different mentality. You have a completely different trajectory. You see rightly and you see immediately. That's salvation. These guys immediately could see. And what does it say as the last two words? They immediately followed Him. And dare I say, they immediately began to preach about Jesus. In John chapter 9, whether it's the same guy or not, probably a different guy. The first thing he does after receiving sight, he's preaching. Because people are like, dude, you're the blind dude. How did that happen? Did did that sinner heal you? Because he's probably a sinner. He's probably demon-possessed. And what did he say? John chapter 9, verse 25, Whether he's a sinner, I do not know, but one thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. That's what I know. When Jesus grabs a hold of you and opens your eyes, it's not that you go, well, let me explain to you my perfect theology of the church, my perfect theology of salvation, how this works. You go, I don't know how it works. I cried out for Jesus and now I can see. And I'm learning and I'm growing well, I know that I was blind and I know I was falling flat in my face and I know I was trying to wander through this life without purpose, without hope, without joy and found it completely dissatisfying. But now I see. And now I'll follow Him. What an amazing story for these guys. Now, this story is recorded in uh, all three Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke could be in John if we say John 9 is the same one. But at least in Mark and Luke, they record the same setting prior to the triumphal entry. And the difference is they only say there was one guy healed. While Matthew says there were two. And by ancient standards, it's far from a contradiction. But scholars offer differing theories as to why there's a difference. I have my own. I think there were two guys, but I think only one of them was remembered. The Gospel of Mark records the name of the one disciple as Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus. And while we don't know what happened to the other blind guy, we do know, because we have his name now, 
that Bartimaeus became a disciple very familiar to everyone. The blind man who was healed by Jesus. Can you imagine walking around with a guy who had been blind, preaching about Jesus like, okay, dude, talk to Bartimaeus. He'll tell you. You don't believe me? Talk to him. Yeah, dude, I was totally blind. What do you mean? Like, no, I could see nothing. I couldn't see nothing. I begged, almost starved, and Jesus opened my eyes. Like, he opened your eyes? Yeah, he opened my eyes. He became a living sermon. And isn't that what is supposed to happen when someone becomes a Christian? Like, oh, dude, you got to talk to John. This guy was an addict, man. He was running after drugs like no one's business, taking every substance he could imagine. And then one day, Jesus saved him. No way. Talk to him. He's right here. We all have that story. Or ought, if we have been truly saved by Jesus. Maybe you were the prodigal son who ran away and indulged in everything that your pleasure would offer. Or maybe you were the prodigal son like myself who did everything good to avoid God. But at some point, your eyes were opened. And those stories should be told and retold and retold as we gather together and go, yeah, let me tell you my Bartimaeus story. Because you know what those disciples thought every time things got dark? Every time they started to ask whether God was going to show up? I don't know. Do you think God can do this one? I'm not sure. They go, Bartimaeus? Bartimaeus, come here. Come here, come here, come here. Yeah, what's up? What were you again? Oh, I was totally blind. You're right. If God can do what no man had ever done, He can do anything. The question we all ask is, what the snarf does that have to do with Easter? Oh, hold on. See, every Easter, I find myself thinking a lot about the day between the crucifixion and the resurrection, Saturday. We don't talk much about Saturday. Saturday must have been an incredibly hopeless day. A dark day. Friday was shocking. Friday, I don't know if they had time to think. They were so scared, going, what? it's, it's What's going on? One of their good friends, Judas, betrays their king, who they'd seen do miracle after miracles, willingly being arrested. I mean, they're just like, what is going on? It was a shock. And then Saturday, they sat in it. Their Savior's in the tomb. Their King. Hopeless. From what they could tell, from what they could see, everything that Jesus was about and had taught was wrong. From what they could see, they had wasted three years of their lives. I can imagine they were not just shocked, but incredibly sad, confused. Some of them were very angry. They had, no pun intended, been blindsided by Jesus' death. And what happened to their trust in God? Shaken at its core, sitting on Saturday. But they were only looking with their eyes. And guess what happened on Sunday? 
it changed, right? It's like, whoa, <laughs> I did not see that coming, right? Should have, because Jesus said it. But when they suddenly saw it, changed everything. Even how much they trusted their own eyes anymore. I think that we talk to you Christians, those of you who say you can see, those of us who say we can see. Let's be honest, most of us live on Saturday. And you live on Saturday wondering, is God going to show up? I mean, I, I think I believe in Him. This seems like a pretty hopeless situation. This might be too much for God. I don't know. Does He care about this? We live on Saturday because we don't have a deep belief in the resurrection. A deep belief in the resurrection. The resurrection is what defines Christianity. The resurrection is what inspires us. It is what empowers us. It is what gives us hope and security. The resurrection is everything. And if the resurrection's false, then Paul is right when he writes in 1 Corinthians 15 that we are a, pe- a people to be most pitied. Because we are not only blind, we are blind guides to others. Don't follow us if the resurrection is not true. We don't know where we're going. We're lost. But if Jesus did rise from the dead, which I believe with the core of my being, He did. If Jesus did what no man has ever or will ever do, then Jesus is exactly who He says He is. And those who believe in the resurrection are the only ones who can truly see. The only ones who can truly see. There are those who are blind here because you have never seen Jesus as anything but a good teacher, a good example, a nice servant. But you're blind. And I would compel you and I would plead you to believe in the resurrection. To believe that Jesus not only died in your place for your sins, but that three days later He rose from the dead to prove He was who He said He was. And there are many of us who claim to see, but I think some of us have developed what I'll just call some Christian cataracts. Because we've forgotten the resurrection. It's not because you've forgotten some of the teachings of Jesus. It's not because you've been unloving. It's because you have failed to trust that Jesus overcame Satan's sin and death. And that Jesus rose from the dead. And that He didn't intend for us to live on Saturday wondering if He was going to be victorious in whatever lifeless, hopeless situation you find yourself. But to live on Sunday where He said, it's finished. I won. Rest. Let's go. I'm coming again. Never forget. Never ever forget your former blindness. Who we were. But never, ever, ever stop celebrating your resurrection. Who you are. Who we are in Christ. You're not defined by your blindness and what you were. You need to remember it, but that's not who you are. That just praises and makes that much more greater who you are in Christ. And then, 
never, ever forget, or better said, always anticipate your final restoration. What does that mean? Paul says that though we see now, we see dimly. And there will be a day when we see perfectly. When God sees us for as He sees us now, we see Him for how He sees us, and it will be awesome. Full restoration where we still screw up now, right? We still make our mistakes now, right? But the truth is, that's not who we are. And who we're becoming is even more glorious. Where He'll fully restore everything back to the way it was in the beginning. We're going to take communion. We're going to have some baptisms. Or we're going to celebrate the fact that we can see. I don't know much. But I know I was blind and now I can see. And if you believe that, if you have confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, then you can see. Now, let's be honest. We see dimly. We still stumble around at times. But the truth is, He has caused us to see the fact that we're blind and that we're weak. And this is His promise to not only forgive us, but empower us. But this table can easily just be representative of the crucifixion. You can come and go, I know I'm forgiven. I know I'm so horrible. Okay, yes. But never forget, the resurrection says, that's that's who you were. Who you were, who we are. So let's sing and rejoice as if we really believe that Jesus really rose from the dead and it will be the same tomorrow and the next day and the next day. The tomb isn't just empty once a year. Hello, it's empty forever. So let's sing as if that's true. Christians have not become known as the most joyful of people. You want to know why that is? The resurrection. We need to preach that more. Think about that more. Remember that more. Let's pray. Father God, we thank You for doing everything that we could not. We are blind, broken, Darkness, loving fools. And yet you jumped into the middle of the darkness and you brought the light of your Son to save us. The first thing you did was show us that we were blind. Father, help us to see that we can't see. And then we cry out for mercy. And we receive Your grace that comes through the death and resurrection of Your Son. Father, make us a joyful people who remember that this world is not all there is. For those of us who are experiencing right now what are lifeless situations, Father, help us to remember the resurrection. For those of us who are sinning right now in situations that are hopeless, help us to remember the resurrection. For those of us who feel lost and confused and even angry, Lord, Help us to live on the Sunday of the resurrection knowing that You have conquered sin. You have conquered Satan. You have conquered death. And the tomb is empty and will remain empty forever. Let us rejoice that we have life and life abundantly. It's in the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.